Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody. This is Dr. Simon. Uh, my show is called The Stories We Live By. And today I want to talk about a marriage, partnering, uh, long term relationships of a variety of kinds in which people merge their stories. Now, as I've said many, many times, uh, we live by stories and we inhabit. We not only create the stories, but we inhabit them as characters within the story so that we're on the outside of the story, creating it and telling it to others, shaping it, but we're on the inside as characters. And how we see ourselves as characters uh, determines so much of the quality of our life. If we see ourselves as basically good, moral, as kind of the hero of the story, if there's hope uh, in the character that we live as, uh, if there's uh, a sense of competence, skill, satisfaction uh, with our work, with our relationships, uh, it's very different than if we see ourselves as defective, uh, as living in despair and hopelessness, uh, we feel helpless. Um, unfortunately, we have all kinds of psychiatric names uh, as pathologies or illnesses or disorders um, for the kind of stories uh, that, that uh, get people into trouble with their lives. And very often because they're in them and they have trouble owning them, uh, they can't change them easily. But today I want to talk about uh, relationships in which uh, we in, have an intense involvement with another human being or other human beings. And in the intensity of those relationships, in effect, create a shared story. Now, l- let me tell you a little bit about uh, to frame this, this uh, discussion. And by the way, if anybody would like to call in, uh, you can wait a little bit to do that. But uh, 646 Seven one six seven seven five six. A fact about my life: I'll be married this June for fifty years, um, and my wife and I will celebrate our fiftieth anniversary in June. And I use the word celebrate because I mean the word celebrate, and I think I'm fairly certain that she feels the same way. So that. Um, a lot of my, my reference points come out of my own life. And this is true uh, for everyone. Uh, we grow up within the stories of our parents, of our church, our political system. And as I've said a number of times, we create, hopefully, a story that feels right for us and, again, has the qualities of hope, of competence, um, rather than uh, feeling that we are defective, that we're the villain of the story, that we're a non-entity, that we don't matter. Uh, I did a whole show once some time back about mattering. Do we matter? And if we don't feel we matter, we're in, we're in trouble. I mean, you have to feel, I think, as a human being, that you matter, that your life has purpose. And certainly these are all things that are true in a relationship such as a marriage. Uh, but... Well, my reference point is shaped by my own marriage. I'm not going to talk about my marriage. I mean, um, I, I'm, I'm not about to give personal information about my sex life, my uh, economic life, 
uh, although I'm going to talk about sex and economics, uh, because they're a part and parcel of the relationship, every, every relationship, every marriage, in one way or another. And, of course, what makes this show interesting in, in, in terms of my experience as a, as a person and as a therapist and as a human being who has been an observer of the human condition and of relationships, um, because I'm a psychologist, um, uh, I'm going to frame these discussions, but not in personal terms. The other thing I'm not going to do is give advice. Um, some years ago, if you started to walk into a Barnes & Noble or a uh, Amazon, one of these big bookstores or uh, Amazon's on the, on, online, but uh, Borders, the psychology section moved from books about psychology that created reference points for people or created information and, and talked about evolution, talked about Freud, talked about Jung. Um, Jung was always more popular in the bookstores than Jung was popular in the universities and the academic centers. It began to shift uh, to how to, how to live your life, how to be successful, how to have a good marriage, how to be uh, creative. And more and more when I looked at those books, uh, I found them absolutely offensive. I found them offensive because as a therapist, and as a person, particularly but as a therapist, uh, I learned that the one thing you don't do as a good therapist, as an ethical therapist, is tell people how to live their lives. Now, you're going to influence how people live their lives. In any relationship, you, you influence people. But to consciously tell people, because I'm an expert, this is the way you should live, uh, creates all kinds of dangers. First of all, None of us are real experts. I said this all the time on this show. We're not experts. Um, I look at some of my own behavior over the years and even today, and I'm always struggling to, if I become aware of it, an aspect of my own personality and my own behavior, uh, that's not what I like it to be. Um, I'll give you an example. That I can do. Uh, of late, I've been struggling to play a better round of golf. And my wife said to me uh, some, a week ago or so, she said, you know, you're starting to take this very seriously. And when I discovered, when I have a good round of golf, uh, I feel really good about myself. And I tend to tell people I had a really good round of golf. When I start to uh, miss a lot of shots and I don't do well, I start to hear I'm whining. I really am. Uh, sometimes it becomes funny when I become aware of it. Uh, I went out with a foursome uh, just this week, and I said to the group, uh, I wonder how many times we said the word F-U-C-K during this round, because that's what <laughs> men, when they become infantile and angry because they miss the golf ball, tend to shriek out, uh, cursing, I'm a shithead, I'm no good. Uh, when you're caught in it and you don't own it, uh, it's not funny. And it's something that I see as an immaturity and a loss of perspective. Very important that we understand ourselves in terms of perspective. Uh, after my round of golf this week, I visited a friend who had a stroke, a very serious stroke. Uh, and uh, the doctors initially said to his wife, pull the plug. Uh, he's going to be a vegetable, and that's the end of it. It was very serious. Through all the good attention he had, and I think in part because 
Uh, he certainly married the right woman. Uh, and the family support and the excellent care he got from one of the uh, premier centers, rehab centers down here. Uh, he's recovering. And we had a discussion about life, and he's sort of become more of a philosopher than he was before. And as I sat and talked to him, suddenly my experience of whining about a golf game uh, was given a different perspective. And I said, you know what? This is ridiculous. Um, I, I had more fun today on the golf course than I've had in a long time because it really to make a difference to me whether I hit the ball or I didn't hit the ball. It was just nice to be out. And as somebody once said to me, which I quote all the time, we're on the right side of the grass today, uh, and that's got to be a good thing. So uh, I'm not going to give advice. To give advice is to take responsibility for somebody's actions. It's to imply coerciveness. Uh, it implies that if they don't take your advice, uh, there's something wrong with them, uh, and you might be angry and rejecting of them. I believe that people have to own their lives to the degree that it's possible and be able to make the decisions they have to make within their relationships and about their jobs and about all aspects of their life, their medical care, because the more we make our own decisions based on information or based upon the best advice, we can, best information advice, or if we're given advice that we recognize it as, as something that may be uh, uh, good or tainted, but that we, we, we make this decision. Primarily, it's we who take responsibility for our lives. So I don't like these books, and I will not give you any advice tonight. And by the way, if I don't finish the show tonight, because this is such a vast topic, I will simply make uh, stories about marriage uh, part two for next week. So now let's talk a little bit about marriage. Uh, I, wasn't, I did a lot of therapy uh, over 45 years, and my therapy evolved. And it evolved... Um, recognizing that sometimes you have to work just with an individual, but that when an individual comes into the room, they bring a lot of people with them. They bring the baggage with them. And very often, it's those stories that they have been embedded in, family stories, parental stories, religious stories, political stories, uh, educational stories, that are the problem that they have been cast a certain way, uh, that they have been blinded uh, by certain kinds of information, uh, that they have been forbidden to examine certain of the rules that they were raised with. In fact, I have to put the note down for myself and do a whole show on that. Things that we're forbidden to even look at, forbidden to talk about, forbidden even to think about, uh, all kinds of family stuff uh, that you just you don't question, you're not allowed to question, and you're threatened very seriously with a withdrawal of love or physical punishment or, or something very serious if you talk about it, if you question, if you speak up. So that uh, in these um, uh, uh, authoritarian and totalitarian relationships that we grow up in sometimes, very often, uh, we walk into our relationship, we walk into the therapist's office, and we carry this stuff. So what I want to do is, is, is talk about the fact that when we meet somebody and we get married, 
or formal partnering or a long-term relationship of any kind. Uh, and I'm particularly going to limit this to live together. We carry all kinds of baggage, fears, hopes, and stories and aspects of our story that we will not dare tell the other. There are things that we've all done that, whether right or wrong, uh, that, that we're ashamed of. And we won't let anybody go where we're ashamed. What's so interesting is that so much of the shame that we take out of childhood or the guilt we take out of childhood really has been kind of foisted on us uh, with expressions by a parent who says, uh, you ruined our marriage. It's your fault. The things we've actually done that we might be ashamed of or feel guilty about, uh, we're not guilty about. But many of the things that we, we carry into a relationship that preclude any kind of real discussion, any kind of opening in the relationship uh, so that we can be known to our partner in that area, that we can be genuinely a familiar, that we can feel relaxed with the other individual, uh, are there before uh, we enter. And they then, from the very beginning, uh, create tensions and create uh, difficulties uh, to, to work out and work through because they're never named. Uh, we never let anybody get to them. Um, this is something that, uh, you know, deep, deep shames, uh, feelings of inadequacy, whether it's sexual or uh, economic or uh, something about our appearance that we are hypersensitive to uh, and that any person, including the person we're living with, tries to get to leads to anger and leads to uh, uh, all kinds of conflict. So I'm not going to give advice, but I want to talk about uh, these stories along certain dimensions. Okay? In fact, I have already just now opened up one of those dimensions. Uh, what are we comfortable with in the presence of another individual? What are, what are we comfortable with? What can we communicate about? Right? However, and here's something that when I work with, oh, let me, let me go back again. I have to roll back. I get, I get lost in my own thought here. Um, when individuals come in and we start to work, not only do we have to start to create uh, a dialogue along certain dimensions, um, but if there are children involved, we have another a deep level uh, of, of, of where it needs understanding. In a relationship, there is an I, a me. There is a relationship with you. And then there's an us. And when I work with people over the years who are happy, where the relationship is a good one, at least in certain aspects, it's because they're both comfortable with the fact that the I is allowed sacrosanct and respected. Um, I think in the essence of any relationship, there has to be a certain kind of respect for the privacy that the other individual wants to keep. Right? Um, so there's an I, and I can follow, and I'm not using this personally, but in, in a general sense, 
that one member can say, I can keep my hobbies. I can keep doing many of the things I enjoy. I have my own space. I listen to my own music. I can uh, uh, do all my thoughts on my own. Uh, this is, again, very critical. Uh, nobody opens my mail. Nobody uh, follows me. Uh, nobody listens on my phone calls. Nobody spies on me. And on a political sense, this is very, very important because this is breaking down in America. But within the uh, sacrosanct of our own home, within the safety of our own home, uh, the degree to which I can keep a border, any of us can keep a border with the individual that we're living with, uh, is very important. However, will I permit you to keep your border? Will the you be respected in the relationship? And this is very often... Uh, an intense, difficult negotiation, because to the degree that I keep a large section of my life separate, and you keep a large section of your life separate, where our individual identities are critically important in vast areas of our life, both because of defensive needs the things that we'll never talk about because we're ashamed, embarrassed, uh, uh, we don't want the other person to know, or because um, I, I want to play golf six times a week, and I want to meet with my friends and go out for dinner, uh, my, my childhood friends. And uh, I'll talk about in a moment, um, I want to spend a lot of time with my parents, uh, and you don't. There can be no us. And I've had a number of relationships over the years where one or the other, as we discuss it in these terms, how much of this, of this relationship is me, how much of it is you, and how much of it is us, where one or both suddenly aware there is no us. There is no us. They don't do anything really together. They don't sit down and communicate. Uh, there may be things that impede their sex life. And I want to talk about sex uh, separately because in uh, most marriages, in most love relationships, in most partnering, one of the critical aspects of, of need satisfaction involves sex. Uh, sex is a life force. Uh, sex is, uh, makes life wonderful. Um, how do we deal with our sex in a relationship is no easy matter. And one of the rewards of marriage, uh, as particularly when uh, in my generation, when I grew up in the 50s, uh, sex, negotiating sex was extremely difficult. Um, I remember a, a camp uh, I went to when I was 18, and one of the guys was uh, had a girlfriend there, and they were going at it, uh, and many of us were jealous. Um, not that I couldn't talk to girls or date girls, but girls were very defensive about sex because to get pregnant was a life-changing phenomenon. Sex for a woman is a, uh, a heavy responsibility because a woman can get pregnant. And back then, there was no birth control for women. I mean, the birth control uh, that we've invented now, the pill, the, uh, the morning after pill, 
the availability of abortion has changed the sexual behavior of women uh, prior to marriage and in marriage. In fact, what's so interesting is that uh, most of the abortions in the United States are by married people, and a very large proportion of them by Catholic uh, uh, women. Um, not, not a major proportion, but it's a significant number uh, <laughs> for a variety of reasons. So uh, the management of sex uh, is 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 uh, uh, um, very different for men and women. Uh, for men, and I'm using the evolutionary term here, it's a cheap act, full of pleasure, with no real responsibility, unless we see a responsibility in the outcome of the sex act. For a woman, it's an expensive act. To become pregnant is to risk one's life, even today, in the uh, having a baby and giving birth. Uh, and society still demands much more that the woman uh, be the caretaker of that child. And most women, whether it's social pressure or whether it's, I believe, also a big piece of evolution, uh, accept that and love that responsibility. They live up to that responsibility. But it's an unequal responsibility. So that when we look at uh, uh, a I and a you and an us, how is it shared? Uh, do we have one partner who demands that everything be us? One of the most complicated marriages I worked with for many years, uh, over many years, was uh, a young woman who insisted that their marriage have no secrets, whatever. And she demanded and was upset when her husband said he wanted to move his bowels by himself. He wanted privacy in the toilet. Uh, and this took a lot of work. Uh, ultimately, it was resolved. It, it, it was resolved. But uh, in many cases, these things become marriage breakers. Uh, one of the marriages that dissolved in front of my eyes uh, was a, uh, a man who demanded his wife go to bed when he went to bed. And this had nothing to do with sex because he was a heavy drinker. And by the time he got into bed, he was not capable of having sex. Um, he just went to sleep. But as, as she ultimately began to see and put it, his tyranny was the tyranny of a baby or a young child throwing temper tantrums. Uh, and that's another issue I want to talk about, how we resolve conflict. Do we resolve it uh, peacefully, intelligently, or do we resolve it with blackmail and temper tantrums and violence? Because uh, that occurs in all too many relationships. Well, ultimately, she, in the course of, of our work, began to stand up to him and say, I'm not going to bed at 8.30. Uh, if you had stopped, if you could stop drinking, uh, which immediately brought all kinds of roars and protests, uh, I'm not drinking that much. Um, uh, it, it was an impossible situation for her. She was being absorbed. Um, she had no desire to go to bed before 11 or 12 o'clock. This was a, a, a woman in her late 20s. Uh, she worked all day. Um, she had household responsibilities that she accepted, but she wanted to watch some television, read a book, uh, talk on the phone uh, with friends and family. Uh, and his demand was, if you love me, and I, by the way, I, I, let me jump ahead to a topic. This is blackmail, if you love me. 
you would do this. If you love me, you'd go to bed at 8 o'clock. If you love me, you'd have sex the way I want to have it. Um, and I always was, a, was helpful to my patients and my students when this topic would come up. Uh, for example, one young woman whose uh, boyfriend wanted to have oral sex. And it's such an interesting thing about oral sex. Oral sex, when I was in graduate school and in the DSM, which one was it? One or two, two or maybe even three, was listed as a serious mental disorder. Today, to show you the fickleness of society and how these bizarre labels called illnesses and disorders are basically uh, coagulations of, of social standards of moral standards and make and they're therefore moral judgments uh, oral sex was um, a, a real mental disorder um, the the the, uh, the, the uh, woman who wanted this or the man who wanted this was a sickie today uh, you have a mental problem and a disorder a sexual inhibition problem if you don't engage in oral sex or even anal sex uh, and again, uh, working these things out in a relationship to the satisfaction of both individuals is something that I've observed uh, is the, the, a source of a good long-term relationship. Otherwise, it breeds resentment, it breeds, breeds, uh, uh, breeds contempt, all kinds of very serious kinds of consequences which can be denied uh, to the self and could be uh, pretended it doesn't really exist but in all of the cases I've worked with all of the groups I've worked with uh, this is um, ultimately corrosive to the relationship so there's an I there's a you and there's an us and to the degree that both are satisfied and that somehow there's a balance whatever that is for that particular couple um, uh, will determine and had, does determine so much of the feeling of the pleasure or the distaste uh, or the difficulty uh, in, in a relationship. If anybody's listening and you want to call in, this would be good, 646-716-7756. I'm having fun. I hope anybody who listens to this is having fun. Uh, so, Let's talk about some other topics. I'm going to leave the politics. Well, you know, let me deal with that now, a little bit about that now, because I've done this now uh, in almost every show. So much of what happens when people interact uh, involves conflict. And I've never seen a human relationship without conflict. Uh, when I see, you know, I, I deal with married couples on every level. I mean, you know, well, Married couples tend to socialize together. Um, it's un more unusual for married couples to have uh, relationships with singles. Um, there's always a difficulty there uh, uh, of some kind that would have to be worked out or would be a special case. But most married couples socialize with married couples. And um, there will be people that I meet who say they never have conflict. And then I watch them argue all evening. Uh, and pretend they're not arguing, and it gets so convoluted, it gets so complicated. Um, nobody, there are people who deny they ever have a problem. Life is Sunnybrook Farm. Uh, I mean, we went out, went out for dinner with a couple, 
and my daughter had was going to college with the, the son of this particular couple. And I said, how are the kids doing? Fantastic. And I knew the kid had been thrown out of school for fighting and drinking. Uh, fantastic. And at that moment, you know that this relationship you have with that couple uh, or with somebody who you might want to see as a friend over a long period of your time, even a lifetime, really can't work out. Because if there's no ability to lower the barrier, uh, to discuss something in a meaningful, non-judgmental way, and of course, so much of, of, of uh, interaction is a contest for who has the better life, who has the more money. Um, so much of this is a struggle for self-esteem uh, and there are two ways you can increase your self-esteem, make yourself better than the other or make them lower and worse than you. Uh, and this is when I talk about authoritarian politics uh, in a moment. That, that, that is so much of it. But if there's no only these barriers, then there really is no us within a friendship. And it always, to me, there had to be a quality of us. Uh, I have to be able to say to you, no, well, I can't uh, play tennis with you for the next two weeks. I'm going away, and you're not mad at me, or I'm not mad at you. Uh, but th th there needs to be shared activity and emotional sharing. And again, I'm going to make a generalization here. Most of the men I've met in my life cannot share emotionally. The emotions are shared mostly over sports. Uh, the passion is about football, baseball, etc., etc., uh, and and, uh, uh, and for most of the time, I'm content with that. Although every once in a while, I have a breakthrough with somebody where they have it with me, uh, and there's something really lovely and important because there's a kind of intimacy and a relaxation that takes place in a relationship, uh, and, and it's so important to me uh, and to the relationships I've worked with that there be a relaxation, that there be um, respect, that there be humor. Uh, and when I work with married couples, one of the things I'll always ask is, when did you stop laughing together? Or did you ever laugh together? When you see a couple that's relaxed, that they can kid each other, actually let out some of the hostility and the anger they may have in non-hostile kinds of humor where you could say somebody something to somebody with humor and they see it and accept it rather than feel attacked and feel they now have to defend themselves and attack back uh, or it doesn't lead to fights and screaming and war and I'll talk about again I'll try to put that back into a topic as we go along so um, when, when we are dealing with these uh, uh, aspects of, of relationship, um, uh, is there a lowering of the God and a setting up of I, you, and us? Uh, is there a feeling of uh, uh, that you're safe, that you're not going to be blackmailed? You're not going to be, uh, if you loved me, you would do this. And by the way, the response to that was very easy. I helped this young student. Uh, her response ultimately became to him, if you love me, you wouldn't ask me to do something that violates how I feel about myself and my life. It goes both ways. And often the blackmailer gets away with it 
because the individual then feels guilty and inferior to whom the blackmail has been applied, the force has been applied, because they really don't understand a democratic relationship, a give-and-take relationship. They don't understand the idea of mutual, respectful negotiation. Our government is disintegrating over this very, not the issues, but the mode of interaction. And most of the couples I've worked with over the years, and there's been a lot of them, uh, so much of the, of the relationship is authoritarian. The individual learns it with, at home because the relationships between parent and child were authoritarian. It's my way or the highway. And, and if you look again at the authoritarian relationship, it's based upon who is morally and innately superior to somebody else. You're a child, you have nothing to say. Now, I agree that in the parenting, and this is, I'm not going to launch into a parenting discussion, uh, I pay the mortgage, I make the major decisions, but that doesn't mean the child can't have something very important to say, and in fact, say things that may even lead to a change in adult uh, behavior, or change the decisions that were made uh, to favor in some ways the needs or the desires or the perceptions of the child. Uh, in, in so many of the relationships I've worked with, a woman who came into me uh, alone, uh, her lawyer had sent her, and she in her mind was past trying to negotiate uh, or was, have the husband come in. Um, his, his word for her, you're a bitch. Shut up, bitch. Uh, the labeling that occurs, that dehumanizes in a relationship, uh, says something about the nature of that relationship that's critical. And when somebody feels belittled, uh, they may stay in a relationship for long periods of time because the children are involved, perhaps, or uh, because of so many women uh, of an earlier generation, and to this degree today, too, uh, who didn't go to school, didn't get a degree, uh, don't have skills and can't walk out of a relationship because they'd be impoverished, particularly if, if they're taking care of children, if they're a parent. And so they put up with this, but they get even. They get even. They find all kinds of ways uh, uh, to negate the needs of the other. They talk about behind their back. Uh, the bed becomes moves from a source of great pleasure and 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 uh, uh, give and take to withholding and anger. Um, very hard to. It's interesting. We use the word make love. Uh, very hard to make love to somebody uh, in the midst of a battle. You can have sex. Uh, and by the way, sex is. You know, the, uh, I'm not going to use the word fucking, but that's a really great word because it expresses so much of what happens between people in a relationship that's sexual. Uh, there's a great line in Woody Allen's film, I think it's Annie Hall, uh, where Diane Keaton, who the character Annie Hall, uh, is his, uh, um, who was Woody Allen's wife at the time. And uh, she says to Woody Allen, she says, uh, I think his name was Alfie in the film. You know, Alfie, sex without love is just a meaningless act. And his response to her is, well, as meaningless acts go, it's one of the best. Uh, and that's true. <laughs> People can work out a relationship sexually uh, where there really is no love. But ultimately, in my experience, to sustain it over the long run, 
uh, and I haven't yet talked about, and I probably won't even get to it today because I'm starting to get a little tired, um, the long-term relationship. Uh, your marriage at 50 years or 25 years or 30 years or 15 years is not the same marriage that you enter into uh, in the first year or two. Uh, when you have children, uh, things change profoundly. Sooner or later, one of you gets sick, and the marriage gets tested. How much of there is in us? How much really love and respect is there? Uh, one of the saddest uh, 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 interactions I ever saw was a young couple who came at the wife's behest and the lawyer's behest, uh, and the young woman had developed multiple sclerosis. And the young man uh, wanted to leave her. Um, and finally, he said, open. She's no fun anymore. Well, uh, let me tell you, boys and girls, um, uh, I, I know many people married 40, 50 years. And uh, there's sickness in those relationships. I mean, physical illness, cancer, uh, the difficulty with children, uh, the illness of a child. Um, Something like 80, 90% of families, break, marriages break up uh, or become very, very strong. The small minority that survive the death of a child. Um, I, I've dealt, unfortunately, uh, not personally, but I've dealt with that in my practice a number of times, particularly a child who commits suicide. A child who commits suicide does things to uh, everybody's life around him uh, uh, that is just absolutely unbelievable. Unbelievable. And I forgot to press my... Uh, okay, I'll do it now. Um, let people know on Twitter, Facebook, and Blog Talk Radio that I've been talking now for, 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 for 40 minutes. So, uh, so, how are conflicts resolved? There are always conflicts in every relationship. And why are there conflicts? Because I'm me and you're you. And as we negotiate the big and small things in life, uh, when will we have sex and what will we do in the sex act? When will we have dinner and what will we eat? Uh, what will we watch on television? What movies will we go to? What friends will we see? Will we see your friends that you had before the marriage or my friends that I had before the marriage? Uh, yes. Uh, I don't like, I like your friend, uh, but I don't like a husband. Right? You want to continue seeing your friend and you want it to be social. Uh, how do I deal with that? Uh, I have a friend and you don't like the wife, but I want to continue seeing them socially. How do we deal with that? Right? Do we deal with it with blackmail, with force, with insults, with a hierarchical expression, um, Will it be, you never understand me, uh, you're no good, I'm sorry? Will, you, will we lash out at each other with things that are so hurtful that they're never really forgotten? You know, I hate you. You make my life misery. Uh, I don't know why I married you. Uh, I, I've, again, I've seen this in so many cases. And again, people will put up with it for periods of time. But love doesn't deal well uh, with uh, this kind of assault on self-image, uh, this kind of pressure within a relationship. It just doesn't. 
And if you're evaluating, if you're listening and you're evaluating your relationship, do you do this to your mate, to your friends? Do they do it to you? And if so, why do you put up with it? Why don't you uh, uh, work this out if it's workable? Or end it if it's endable? Is that a word? Endable? If it can be finished. Uh, A quick aside... I learned in my relationship that I loved my wife, and I did, I still do, but I need her. And over the years of working with people or examining myself and my relationship, love and need are not the same thing. Uh, Let me put this on a a very uh, simple plane. We raised three children. I needed to do my career and build my career. My wife wanted to develop her career, but wanted to raise the children. Today, when we, if we got married, I'm not sure it would be uh, the same. I really don't. Uh, it was logical then for me to get my Ph.D., When my kids were all in school, all three of them, my wife went back and got her master's degree and became a teacher. And by the way, my life became so much easier because when her income got piled onto mine, life became much better. But um, today, that would be something that would have to be worked out. However, once we had those children, I needed my wife. She needed me. If I didn't carry out my economic responsibilities and she didn't carry out her responsibilities in relation to the children, I can't even imagine what would happen. And I can't imagine it. I can't imagine for us because we wouldn't be most probably doing a 50th anniversary celebration. The, 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 I see this in relationships. Uh, the struggle that takes place Uh, when there are recriminations and blaming uh, because one or both really uh, didn't work out the contract clearly in their minds, and it is a contract, as to what needs they had of the other and were those needs to be satisfied. Now, sometimes the needs are not contractable because they're not to be spoken. The man I spoke about earlier who had to have his wife accompany him to his drunken bed, uh, had very deep needs uh, that had nothing to do with love. Uh, A woman that I work with who could never let her husband go out at night because she was terrified to be alone. Uh, These are things that were needs, and they were often covered up with uh, the word love. I love you, and if you love me, you wouldn't leave me. If you love me, you'd come to bed with me. I give you hundreds of examples of this, but the two will suffice. So that they're not love. Love is really, and I define this in some of my other shows, I'll define it again, what I believe love is. Love is a state in which the needs of the other are as or more important than your own needs. This is most clear where parents really love their children. Uh, and, and the child's needs come first. I mean, you see this in families, when, and, and, and so many of us see families where children are simply dumped. 
uh, but for most of us, that's inconceivable. And if our child needs something, uh, that need comes first because the thought of it otherwise. Uh, when you experience that you're that important to another human being, not because they need something from you. You're not a means to an end. You're the end itself, that you are uh, that important. When you experience that, it's a wonderful, joyful, uh, and very powerful thing. Uh, and I, many of us do experience that, maybe with a parent, uh, hopefully when we get married or form deep partnerships or long-term family, you know, long-term relationships or friendships, we do experience that. Sometimes friendships, that's a whole topic that you could just talk about forever. That for many of us, the first real love we had in our life was a friendship. Real love. Where that individual does see us and laugh with us uh, and, and, and sees our needs as something uh, that are as important to them as their own needs. So there's nothing wrong with having needs. To be human is to need. But it's not, to me, the same thing as love. And one of the evaluations I help people make when I work with them is, is this need or is this love? And I define love and I define need, and they can pick and choose. Okay? This, by the way, rather than tell people how to live, is what makes therapy effective do you have a relationship based upon mutual trust and negotiation uh, or is it a relationship that's based upon the politics of intimidation and put down uh, you know what I think I've done enough for tonight I'm getting tired I'm going to do another show next week uh, I want to talk about children I want to talk about parents and, and uh, Mary I'll give you just one story one of the earliest uh, divorces I officiated I didn't really help the relationship was a couple who came to me again a, a marital counselor a marital lawyer sent them uh, a young man who said uh, wherever we go her mother has to come and the young lady who said my mother you know my mother's a widow I want her to be with us she wants to be help us so that all their furniture was picked out more by the mother than by the man he wanted it to be negotiated between the two. What it took them some time to see was that when you are married, your primary love object, to use a Freudian term, has to be your mate. The us can include others, but there has to be a core of the us that's really us. Otherwise, it's not a marriage. What you have is a, a, a triangulation, uh, which is a technical term that sometimes professionals use. So I'm going to continue with that next time. And children, I want to talk about divorce, uh, the change of marriage and self over the years. And uh, I think, again, I could do probably a couple more shows on this. If anybody would like to call in, now's your chance because I'm about to press the end episode button. And go have a large glass of water. It's so interesting to me that um, all of the shows I've done in the last six, eight weeks get over a thousand hits. Uh, I mean, never had this kind of response to the stories we live by. And no one calls. Hard for me to understand. 
Maybe it's the timing of it. But anyway, uh, let me open the chat for a minute. Here, we'll do the mini chat. We'll launch a small chat and see if anybody writes anything. Please wait while we create your chat room. One twenty seven. Well, there we go. Okay. Okay. Anybody want to write anything? Okay, I don't even know how to use this. How do I launch this? Oh, well. Good night, folks. Talk to you next week.